Well, this morning we are actually going to be looking at uh, several different passages again in this as we get into the text here. And uh, we're going to be later on spending a significant portion in Luke 15, but prior to that we're going to be jumping around. Let's seek God's blessing on our time. Father, I'm so grateful and thankful that you are our God and we are your people and we can come to you in our time of need at all times and seek you and know that in you we find life and hope and joy. In you we find strength and protection. In you we find help in every way. Apart from you, Lord, we feel nothing but our own weakness and frailty our own decay, our own frailty and insignificance. But in you, we can do all things. So we look to you this morning as as those who are in need. We can't even understand, we can't even know you, Lord, unless you help us, unless you open our eyes to see you. Help us to see you. Help us to know your heart this morning, that we would be a people who have your heart who truly know you and reflect you to the world around us. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. Well, in these last few weeks in December, what we're going to be doing is bringing this series to a close on becoming a church on mission. And we're going to be looking at five different things we need to do in order for us to become a church on mission. We're going to end with some more practical things. Here's what we need to do in order to bring this to a close, in order to really take take something away and and have it with us. And this morning we're going to be looking um, at, at the most basic and fundamental issue. If we're to leave here, um, one of the most fundamental things you must leave with is a proper heart. We must have the heart of God. We, we need to know the heart of our God, and we need to have the heart of our God, and His heartbeat needs to be our heartbeat. What is our God like? Because this is the foundation of it all. If you're to go out, you're going to go out um, reflecting and portraying to the world the God you believe in, the God who, who you understand to be, because all of us tend to do that. The God you believe, the God you worship, the God you understand is often the God that you reflect to the world. How many of you are familiar with Westboro Baptist Church? Have you heard of it before, this church? They're crazy. Let's just put it out there. They're crazy. They're a church that likes uh, to tell people how they're going to burn in hell. Uh, and they say things that represent God in a completely heretical way. And this is because of how they understand him. How they believe, who they believe him to be. Here are some signs. You can go on the internet and type in Westboro Baptist Church and you'll see all kinds of images and just to some of the things they're saying and they're declaring. And they like to get on street corners and hold up signs. And here's some of the signs that they hold up in great big bold letters. God hates America. God hates fag enablers. Thank God for dead soldiers. You're just like, are you kidding me? Yeah, great big signs. They And they have children holding these signs. God hates you. It's just, it literally, it's God hates you. These, these are just great big bold signs. 
You are going to hell. Your doom is coming. God is your enemy. Thank God for AIDS. Listen to this one. Planes crash, God laughs. Pardon? God hates your feelings. Now, this is just a sampling. You can go find out for yourself. It's, it's pretty remarkable. So you ask yourself, okay, I wonder what these people believe about God. When they think about God, what do they envision? Who do they see? Who do they think about? Is he just a blazing inferno? It's like gleefully can't wait to grab someone and fire them into hell and then giggles as, as he does it? Probably. Could you imagine serving that God? You'd live in terror. Your whole life, you would just, you would go around in terror yourself thinking at any living, given moment you might do something wrong and guess where you're going to end up? You're in hell forever. And you could, you could tell their mindset by how it's reflected in the world around them, how it's reflected through their lives and, and obviously through their signs. You know, I couldn't imagine wanting to turn my life over completely to that kind of God. Out of, I couldn't imagine there, there being any sense of endearment, any sense of compulsion towards him because he's so, he just draws me to him. I couldn't imagine anything but running for my life in the other direction, but then knowing, okay, that, I'm, I'm afraid to do that because, you know, of the consequences. I think that the way, and I know, the way that we view and understand our God, if you were to sit here right now and think about the way you view and understand your God, you, you cannot help but reflect it out to the world around you. You know, there's the other side of the spectrum that we see in our day and age as well. People who think God is simply, you know, he's almost indifferent to all that is going on in the world. He just, because he just loves everyone. He doesn't plan on doing anything, really, except bringing everyone into heaven, and he can't wait. Well, of course, unless they don't want to be there, or unless they're Hitler or Stalin or the like. Then, you know, then they, they will just kind of probably be pushed further outside a little bit. But generally speaking, it's just a, it's just a welcoming party for everybody. And he, he just can't wait. And, and in fact, when he looks at the views of the world, he kind of wrings his hands and says, Oh, I wish they would be nice. I wish they would all just get along. And really, this is the, and, and you, and the people, imagine now you believe this to be the God of heaven and earth. How does that reflect in their lives? Well, these people are often terribly sweet and nice, and but they don't stand for anything. They, they, there's no statement or declaration of truth. There's, there's no sense of justice. There's no sense of love that compels you to do, um, to, to do sacrificial things. And, and there's, there's no sense of understanding any of the hardships or the hardness of life. You have no categories for all the evil in the world. You see both of these extremes, whether you see God as this burning inferno or this teddy bear in the sky who just longs for you to come join him, you realize that the God you believe in and what he is like affects your heart, your life, your worldview, and you project that onto the world around you. You can't help it. 
But thankfully, we're not left for you and me, for me to stand up here and speculate and come up with my own ideas. You're not left with, you know, hey, what, what do you think? Or, hey, what do you think? You know, God has fully disclosed himself and revealed himself to us in his word. He says, I have revealed, this is the full revelation of God and who he is. So the great thing is we can go to Scripture and we, we don't have to speculate and we don't have to, you know, uh, make it up in our heads. We can go here and know and understand who he is. The other thing we have to be careful of, though, because Westboro Baptist Church has a Bible as well and they believe they're preaching it, we can't find a favorite verse and jump all over it. Because you can find verses for, to, to basically declare and present anything you almost want to. The thing about finding a text is always understanding the text in its context. What's happening? What's going on? You know, because until you understand what's happening around it or why it's being said, give me a fuller, better picture you don't really understand. And if you think context isn't important, well, just look at the news today. They can make you say anything and make you appear any way they want to simply by pulling out bits and pieces and putting them together and say, see, look. And so context is hugely important. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at Scripture and help us to understand who is our God. I want us to know the heart, regain, and really understand the heart of our God. Because especially the heart of our God towards the world and toward those who are lost, because once we do, it affects the way we ourselves live. It's a foundational element. And so let's look for a moment at God's love and God's wrath in context. Last week, we looked at this passage in 1 John 4, right? It says, God is love. And in there, the whole argument is this. He's saying, if you, if you don't love, you don't know God. And he's saying, why? Because God is love. Those who know God love because God is love. Again, what's he saying? When you know him and you understand him, you reflect him. If you, you have a, a knowledge and a relationship with him, it'll come out of your life. And because love Love is God's very essence. It's his nature. It can never change. He is love. He cannot do anything but out of love. Love is the motive for all he does. You will never find a passage of scripture that says God is wrath as a fundamental aspect of his nature. You won't. Because <laughs> he's, he, he, in fact, understand this. This is very important. You realize that his wrath comes out of his love. It's because he loves and loves so intensely that he, that he actually has wrath. Because think of it like this. All wrath comes out of a love of something that is being rejected, denied, or mistreated. That's where wrath comes from. If I love my name, I become indignant if someone maligns it. If I love my wife and children, I become filled with wrath if they are mistreated and harmed. And rightly so. If, I, if we don't love something, and in fact don't care much for it, we don't become angry with it if it is rejected or mistreated. Just go and treat my garbage however you want. I won't be hurt. 
If you went up to my garbage can and started kicking it and throwing my garbage around, the only thing I'd become upset about probably is if you started destroying my yard in the process. I hope you're going to pick that up. But the garbage itself, I don't care about. There's no, there's no affection. There's no law. In fact, I, I, I want, I'm, I'm intending to get rid of it. The same goes for God. His wrath comes in direct proportion to the things he loves. Yet, I think maybe some sharp Bible student might say, okay, I, I'm tracking with you, Dean. I hear what you're saying. But what about the scriptures that speak of God's destruction of cities? And whole people groups, men, women, and children, and beasts. He wipes them out. He sends Israel to wipe them out. What about Moses who keeps interceding for Israel and it's because of his intercession that he saves Israel, that God wanted to destroy Israel? What about those aspects? What's going on? Well, they're all, that's a good question. But we have to understand all those things again. What did I say at the beginning in context? because it changes everything. When the Bible talks about God destroying cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, or when he commands his people to destroy men, women, children, and beasts in a city, what are we seeing? What we're seeing in those occasions are something that has to do, that has to be understand, understood in context of what's going on in those places. Because without context, this is what it'd be like. It'd be like having a crowd of people watch a video clip of you beating the life out of someone violently and then having that clip stopped. Bang. You imagine that. You see this clip and you just beat someone to death violently and they stopped it. What do you think? What would they think of you? If I ask the question, they say, not very much. You're a wicked, evil person. I can't believe you did that. But I said, okay, wait a second. Let me give you some context. The person that they're beating up violently broke into their house, raped their wife, and slaughtered the whole family. Does it change anything? You better believe it. Now let's watch it. And if you have a proper context and you see that, you know what you're going to think? You should have beat them up worse. When I even told you that, I guarantee, as I told you that, you're probably sitting there going, oh man, I can't, you know, when you hear it without the context, it feels hard and sharp. You change the context and you give color and you help them understand and it changes everything. Now, now your whole emotional state shifts. Do you see how important context is? If you have a proper context and understand something in context, you understand it properly. You take it out of context, and then you no longer understand it properly. It changes everything. The same is true in all the passages of Scripture. Because I've heard, I've heard atheists take these passages and make God out to be a monster. And it drives me crazy. I get very angry. I get very angry when I hear them describing, could you serve a God and love a God who does this? And they extract it from any kind of context and then declare it to us. And in fact, if that's all we had and there was no context, I can start to see why they don't like him. I can begin to see why he, they, they see him as such an evil monster. But if we truly understood, things would be so different. You know, in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, 
that he would not let his people go into the land of promise for another 430 years. I prom- he's promised them the land, and in promising them the land, he was going to expel the people of the land, the Canaanites. But you know what God told Abraham? He says, it's not going to happen for another 430 years. And, and do you know why? What he said is because their iniquity is not yet full. In other words, they are not nearly as bad or as evil as they need to be before I would, I would think about removing them. If we understood their iniquity and the fullness of iniquity and how, and how wicked they were, we would obviously be saying before God, why have you not gone yet? When we read about these genocides in scriptures, we don't have the proper context. And we often think they're places like Seattle or Tacoma or Olympia. We think, man, would God just come in and wipe the whole city of Seattle? No. Let me, let me just tell you no. Because when we understand, when God performs a genocide of a people and you see men, women, children, and beasts slaughtered, you have to understand something. That place is so extremely wicked. It would be like Capitol Hill taking the worst parts of Capitol Hill and that being like the whole area of Seattle and the, and the Capitol Hill we know like today being the best part. And it just being so nasty, vile, and wicked at every level that that's the only reason God would say to do it. If you were standing there observing and knew and understood the level of wickedness, this is what you would think about God. I can't believe you're putting up with that. I can't believe you, you haven't done something. When you have the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, when, a, when an angel comes to the door, within five minutes, he can't even get inside the door and the city wants to rape him. You get a little bit of an idea of what Sodom's like. Again, context is everything. And when we understand the right context, we understand that in Scripture, when you see God's wrath being poured out, when you see Him bringing judgment, you have to understand the nature of the context of the situation. If you don't read more broadly, and if you don't understand what's happening and, and, and all that's going on, it can seem like, man, God seems so harsh. Because why? We think of common cities that we live and dwell around today that have been affected and in, in, in so many ways influenced by the gospel. Those aren't the same things. So when we understand God's love and his wrath and realize that even his wrath comes out of his love and that when he does pour out his wrath, he's pouring it out after withholding and suffering a long time before he does do it. But even still, when God does pour out his wrath, we have to understand even the heart of God. Even when he does and he's wrathful and angry, do you realize this, that he does not delight in the death of the wicked? Ezekiel 33, verse 11 says this, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Did you hear that? I, the Lord God, have declared, I have no pleasure. I don't get glee out of it. I don't go around and say, yeah, this is so good. This is great. I get to wipe these suckers out. And he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. My desire is that they would turn and live. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, 
but he is patient towards you. Do you know why? He goes on to say, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 1, 4 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God is pleased and delighted when you're interceding for the people around you, when you intercede for your for your city, when you intercede for the president, when you intercede for authorities, when you pray for them. He's very pleased, pleased by this. Very pleased by this. Because as you can see, God has no desire to wipe them out in judgment. God is not pleased by the death of the wicked. His desire is that we intercede for them. You know, I think God, in a sense, this is how we even have to understand, I was thinking of this in light of Moses, and Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai. And God shows up in the fire and the thunder, and and it gives this impression that he's this terrifying God, like he's just ready to smoke the people dead. But he realizes God even there, I think, in so many ways, is not it's not a full and complete revelation. How do we know that? Because the complete and full revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the exact image of the invisible God. And so what God is doing on Sinai is trying to scare these people because he knows at this point it's the only thing that will affect their behavior in the slightest. And I think, I also think this, when he says to Moses, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe these people out and I'll start fresh with you, that he's in a sense testing Moses. He's testing, is, does Moses have the heart of God or the heart of man? Because what is he looking for? He's looking to see if Moses will intercede on their behalf. And when Moses says, no, Lord, you've promised, Lord, it, I guarantee you it pleased God to see Moses interceding on behalf of Israel. Now, how do I, how do I know that? How do I say that? Not just from 1 Timothy 2.1.4 where he says, intercede for them. Listen to this. In Ezekiel 22.29-31, it says, that the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I, listen, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Do you know what it says? But I found none. There was no one who would intercede for the city. Not one, it says. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them, and I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their own heads, declares the Lord. And he says, why? Because there was not even one single person who would stand up for that city, stand in the breach, and intercede for them. And that, made him angry. There's not even one person who would intercede for this city. A similar idea is expressed in Isaiah 59. In this chapter, Isaiah is describing the injustice and the unrighteousness of Israel. And then the chapter concludes with a declaration of God's heart in verse 15 and following, where it says this, 
the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. No one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. You know, in a, we have to understand that God marveled that there was not a single person in both cases, in Ezekiel and Isaiah, that there was no one to stand up and intercede. And in, uh, in Ezekiel, he pours out his wrath. In, in Isaiah, he says, that's it, I'm going to. I'm going to rise up and save my people. And this is where he goes on to declare, and Isaiah is full of the promises of the coming Messiah, who would actually be the salvation of Israel. And we know that there was one who stood up. There was one who stood in the gap. There was one who interceded. There was one who came and was more than willing, was more than willing to stand in that gap, who was more than willing to not just intercede on behalf of Israel, but intercede on behalf of the world. His name is Jesus. And after he had been betrayed, forsaken, rejected, falsely accused, mocked, beaten, abused, whipped, scourged, humiliated, and nailed to a cross. What did he do? He said to his father, Father, forgive them. Wow. Wow. Father, forgive them. the greatest man who ever lived stood in the gap. He interceded. And what did God do? God, God's anger and his wrath was exhausted and fulfilled in Jesus. And God, no, I'm not going to destroy the earth. I'm going to save it. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this was obscured and clouded throughout the Old Covenant. You have to realize that when you're reading the pages of the Old Covenant, it's almost it's like getting hints and drops of truth and prophecies. And, and, and then there's types and there's shadows who are born and there's covenant promises. It wasn't until Jesus comes on the scene that we got to see, that's what our God is like. The full disclosure the God we serve. I even believe that it breaks the heart of God when he hands sinners over to their final judgment. I believe that the heart of God, even if we observe the final judgment, you know what we're going to see in God? We're going to see the, this passionate love that's just depths of love you can't comprehend. And on the other hand, this incredibly ultimate justice. Justice and mercy coming together, colliding together, so that if even, as God declares judgment, if, if you could even see the face of Jesus, there would be tears running down as he says guilty and issues their punishment. There's no glee. There's no excitement. This breaks God's heart, even in the midst of doing it. But you know what? He can't not do it because he's perfectly just. You know, if you want a good image of this, what it must be like, I'm not sure if you know the story of Absalom, David's son. 
But Absalom became a pretty wicked man. He ended up murdering his brother Amon, and then he committed high treason, not just against any king, but against his father and against the kingdom. He even would have killed his father to have taken over the kingdom. But David fled. David fled, and David wept for his son, and then Absalom, it gets worse. He takes all of his wives and concubines on the top so all Israel can see, and he lies with them in full exposure. I mean, could you? it's just unbelievable what he does. Yet, when it was time for justice to be paid against Absalom, do you realize that David couldn't do it? He almost lost the kingdom because he wouldn't stop weeping for his son Absalom. He was so broken and his heart went so, so greatly towards his son Absalom that he's, he's weeping and, and broken and Joab's like, David, gather yourself together. You're going to lose the kingdom. You're a mess. Absalom needs to be put to death. David couldn't and wouldn't do it. He wouldn't execute the proper justice upon his own son. He couldn't take and, and, and deliver justice upon his son and reestablish the kingdom. Joab ended up killing Absalom. And, the, and then the crazy part is for the, for the rest of Israel to see this is when Joab did execute Absalom, that they're all, there's David, a puddle and a mess, weeping over his son Absalom. And David, we see a man who he understood justice. He understood love, but he was never able to bring them together perfectly. Only one Only one person is so filled with love and so filled with justice that is able to bring these together and deliver up his only begotten son that he might die for the people. You ought to understand that when God delivers justice, he doesn't give up his love It rips his heart apart, and he's more distraught and more pain and more sorrow than David was over Absalom. But David didn't have it in him to execute justice. Because David isn't pure, fully, undefiled, infinite, eternal justice and pure, undefiled, infinite, and eternal love together as one, the perfect. But God is. And so God can execute judgment even though he loves And we see this in Jesus. There's the heart of God. If you want to know uh, this most amazing God, how is it that he's perfectly just and must and has to punish sin righteously and justly and at the same time be so infinitely loving? You've got to look at the cross and see his only beloved son dying for sinners. There's the heart of God and no better expression. This is also why God throws a party when a sinner repents. This is the heart of God. If you look at Luke 15, it's one of the most marvelous chapters in all of Scripture. You get an inside look at God's heart towards sinners, perhaps unlike any other portion of Scripture. And at the very beginning of the chapter, it sets the context for why he's saying what he's saying. Here's how it reads in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. You notice that? Who's drawing near to him? The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Why are they drawn to him? They're drawn to him because this man is so gracious and merciful and loving. He defends a prostitute and forgives her. 
He, he stands up for these unrighteous and wicked. But then look at the re- verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Can you imagine? And from this context, Jesus goes on to tell three stories, each with the purpose of revealing to the Pharisees and scribes a God they knew nothing of. In the first story, Jesus talks about the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and losing one of them and how he lost one of them. And he knows that this is going to be an effective illustration because he's talking to an audience that there are probably several shepherds in there. And if they're not shepherds, they have family members or close friends who are shepherds. It's a shepherding culture. So they get, okay, a man has a hundred sheep. Okay, he, he doesn't have much. He wants to give this idea that this is what he has. This is his possession. He only has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Everyone there would say, okay, I know exactly what he would do. He's going to leave the, the 99, make sure they're safe and protected and go and get the one. Because this is, this is a huge deal to a man who only has a hundred sheep. So they knew emotionally what he's talking about. They, they, they could viscerally sense that feeling like, wow. And then, he says that if he found them, what would happen? They all know, oh man, if he found them, that guy would be jacked. He'd be excited. And, and then Jesus says, yeah, uh, he, he'd be probably throw a party. He's so excited, right? And the same goes for the woman who has 10 silver coins. Imagine that what you have is 10 silver coins. And if all, it's all she has. And if she loses one, what's she going to do? Well, she's going to search for it. She's going to thoroughly seek for it. And when she finds it, she's going to be excited and tell her friends, I thought it was gone. I thought I lost a tenth, a tenth of what I had. And I found it. And, and she has a party out of her excitement. And then there's the father. The father only has two sons. Now, in Israel, having lots of children, and especially having sons, is significant. And this man only has two sons. And then he loses one. And he thinks he's dead. He thinks he's gone forever. Never to be seen again. Never to be heard from again. Gone. And so when the son returns, the father is overjoyed and throws a massive party. They totally get that, right? Every single one of these parables, listen to how Jesus interprets them. In verse 7 about the lost sheep, Jesus says this. Just so I, t- just so I tell you, there will be more joy There will be more joy. Did you hear that? More joy. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Hello, scribes and Pharisees. You want to know the heart of God? There's a party in heaven when one sinner repents. God is elated. And then in verse 10, he says this about the coin being found. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's a resounding refrain throughout this whole section about this tremendous joy in heaven over sinners repenting. And then finally in verse 22 and following, the father says to his servants, 
Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So it is with our Father in heaven. There's a party in heaven. God, it's, it's just like, this is the greatest thing ever. Some, the sinner who was lost and who was far away and was, was, was doing his own thing, his turn and come to God. And God is excited. He, he's, there's a party in heaven. One more! Wow! You know, the sense of joy. That's what Jesus said. Blowing their minds. You don't have a clue who the Father is. None of you have a clue. These Pharisees and scribes, you're, you're, you are so, you're like that older brother who just doesn't get it. Who's so full of self-righteousness. Who's so, so full of arrogance and pride over your status. I'm a child of Abraham. Get away from me, you ugly, rotten sinner. And she's like, you have no clue. You, you have no understanding who your God is. You realize that understanding and knowing the God of all love and all grace and all mercy, it changes you. And I have to ask you, how do you see your God? What is he like? Is he scowling and demanding, harsh and trigger happy? Is he distant and aloof and really hard to impress? Because every single one of us actually has an image and a picture of God, and it affects the way we live, it affects the way we see people, it affects the way we see the world. Do you have compassion and mercy upon the lost? Do you look at the world? Do you see those lost in sin? And does your heart break at all? Or are you thinking, oh man, I can't wait till the day God brings his judgment. Because when that judgment comes, we'll get rid of all these wicked, nasty people. What wells up in your heart? How do you think of God? How do you think that he understands the situation? Because the way we think about it is the way we think about our neighbors and our co-workers and the people that were around. When you look at them, who do you see? Do you have compassion on them? Does your heart break at all? Is, it there, is there any sense of, oh man, I just would love to see them come to know God. They're so lost. They're just, they're just consumed by their own lies and by darkness. Man of God. Man, if they, if they could just, if they could just come home, there would be just such a party. It would be so good. You know, how we look at them and think about them reflects how we think about God. And perhaps maybe what we need to do is repent of our wrong understanding and view of God. Maybe he's a little bit tough and harsh. A little tougher and harsher than even than the scriptures of trying to help us understand him. And you realize, okay, if you want to see who Jesus was the toughest and the harshest with, these were all people who sat in pews in the synagogue every single week. They were the leaders. I think we get it all backwards sometimes, don't we? Like, who is he tough with? He wasn't tough with the world. He wasn't hard on them, but I tell you what, he was tough as nails on of the arrogance and the self-righteousness and the pride 
of those who claimed to know God, to be the closest to God, because they got it so wrong. But who was drawing near to Jesus? Who, did, who loved Jesus? Let's get, remember the context. The sinners and the tax collectors are drawing near to him. They're loving him. Why? He, they knew he loved them. They knew he would quickly forgive them. They knew he would heal them. They knew he would restore them. You know, I think the way, the reason why the, the sinners and the tax collectors stayed away from the Pharisees and the scribes is because they knew they wouldn't be accepted. They knew they'd be judged. They knew they would be, these people wanted nothing to do with them. They knew how pride and self-righteous they were, so they stayed away. I think a lot of times the way people are responding to us, do they, are they drawing near to us? Or are they, ref, are they drawing away from us? And a lot of it has to do with the God we're reflecting. The God of heaven and earth draws sinners. But how easy it is. I, I, we, if, you, if you have flesh and you were born in Adam, you struggle with pride. You struggle with your weaknesses. You struggle with covetousness. You struggle with envy. You struggle with lust. You struggle. And I tell you, you are a lot more like them than you are like God. Big time. Yet God loves and calls and draws. He knows. He says, I know you're weak. I know your flesh. Believe me, I know. That's what I'm here for. I'm to be your strength. I'm to be your wisdom. I'm to be your help. I'm to be your protection. I'm to be your source of everything you need. That's, that's part of learning the Christian life, isn't it? God, I'll do it one more time and I'll show you this time how good I am. Okay, there, hero. Go for it. No, no, it's like, it's, all I know of me is that I'm weak. I'm weak, but he is strong. And the more I know that how much he loves me and how much he loves them and how much he loves the world and how much he desires the repentance, the more I do as well. And so may God give us a heart and a passion that reflects him and not some perverted version of him that's full of arrogance and pride and self-righteousness. May we put away this nonsense and may our hearts go out to the world around us and may we break for them and pray for them and intercede for our cities and our neighborhoods and our neighbors and our co-workers and look at them and say, God, may my heart break for them like yours does, that I would love them. Oh, may God do that. May we have that heart that reflects the heart of the God that's truly revealed, especially in Jesus. Amen. Father, you are so good, and we are so not. You are so strong and mighty, and we are so not. You are so righteous and holy, and we are so not. You're everything, and we are less than nothing. And yet you love us, and you call us, and you want to give all things to us. And in Christ, you died for us. Oh, Lord, for all of us here this morning, I ask that you would fill our hearts with your love for the lost. 
that we look at the world and the people around us and our hearts would break, that we would have your love. Fill us with your love, Lord, because I know apart from you, we've got nothing. Our hearts are dead and cold towards the lost. Lord, may we know you. May we know your love. May you fill us. Fill us here this morning, Father, that we would, we would break over the things that break you and we would desire the things you desire and that we would love the things you love and have pity on the things you pity, that we would have your heart, O oh God. Do this for us because we've got nothing. And because we ask it in your beloved Son, Jesus. Amen.